Housing, the metaverse, bellwether stocks, we got a lot to cover, so let's get started. Motley Fool Money starts now. This is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool senior analyst Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger. Good to see you both. Hey, hey, hey. We got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We'll get an update on the entertainment media landscape. And as always, we got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the big puzzle. On the one hand, data out Friday indicates that both gas prices and mortgage rates are starting to drop. On the other hand, some major companies are either freezing hiring or laying people off. Matt, let me start with you. Everyone's looking for clues to where the economy and the stock market are going, but it kind of seems like clarity is weeks, if not months, away. Absolutely. I, Chris, I'm trying to figure it out myself. <laughs> but I think what I can say confidently is this isn't like 2008. There's not a systemic crisis that is going to bring everything down. Jobs, the economy, asset prices, energy prices, credit markets. I mean, the whole world basically crashed back in 2008. I think we all agree on that. I think what we have today is just really a big jumbled mixed bag. Uh, it's the best way I can describe it. Uh, because I think on one hand, you've got industries like you know, you've got the home builders, you've got manufacturers, you've got technology companies seeing a pretty sharp slowdown. But on the other hand, you've got the energy industry, which is having its best moment in more than a decade. You have hotels and resorts that are charging rates that are higher than before the pandemic. So travel feels pretty strong. Uh, retail is doing fine for the most part. So it just feels really unsettled. I think you can make good arguments for the economy for the economy to go in either direction. And I think that's being reflected in the stock market right now. Investors have a sense that there are opportunities, and there always are opportunities, but they're hesitant because you just don't know what kind of shape the economy is going to be in several months from now, and what higher interest rates are going to mean for a lot of businesses. So, right, I think, I think a holding pattern is, is where the investors and the stock market are right now. Jason, I want to key in on one word Matt said at the end there, and it's hesitant. Because I think that, <laughs> as much as anything, that sums up the mood for a lot of individual investors, and also for a lot of the fund managers and institutional folks on Wall Street. There is a hesitancy to jump into this market with both feet. Yeah, it, it reminds me of that Larry David GIF or GIF, whatever side of the the argument you fall on there. But you know, where he's kind of like uncertain, right? He's he's like, eh, I don't know, maybe so, maybe not. I just I don't really, you know, we're kind of all kind of doing that right now, and it, it does feel that way. Um, I like your I like your use of the word puzzle because it feels like we're trying to just put these pieces together, and it's just right now that picture just isn't there. I mean, there's so many signs pointing in so many different directions. I mean, consumer sentiment. At a record low, uh, personal savings rate is around 4.4% now and falling. There's there's not going to be any more stimulus really uh, to help prop up a consumer spending in that regard. Credit card balance is going up. Starting to see some pressure in the jobs market. 
And then you look at uh, the way the market's been performing. I'm, I'm glad Maddie brought up 2008 because I mean that's I think an important time to remember. We all lived through that, and as investors, it felt like the, the prevailing attitude at the time was the world was kind of coming to an end. It, it felt like it was because there were some fundamentally structural issues at play there that that don't exist today. And if you look at the way the market performed in 2008, it wasn't good, Chris. I mean, it was down 36.5%. And that's right about in line with the average bear market since 1929, right? The S&P loses on average about 36%. We're not even close to that right now. So, I mean, there is every reason to believe we could see the market go lower, but it doesn't necessarily mean it will. And then you add to that this dynamic in play that over the last 20 years, half of the S&P's strongest days Occurred during a bear market, and certainly we're all seeing that at play. I mean, there's just some some very big moves uh, to the upside on certain days when the headlines look a little bit better uh, than others, and so it makes it for a very confusing time. I think, and, and, and honestly, I think it really does point back to why we invest the way we do here, because it is very difficult sometimes to try to uh, ascertain exactly what's going on uh, on a daily basis. Adding to the confusion is the fact that at the close of trading on Friday, the Russell 1000 Value Index will do some rebalancing. And among the stocks being added to the Value Index are Netflix, PayPal, and Meta Platforms, the parent company of Facebook. Jason, those are three of the biggest growth stocks of the past decade. <laughs> what are they doing in a value index? Well, other than the obligatory rebalancing that comes from stocks headed to different benchmarks, I think it's interesting to think about why these businesses are where they are today. Uh, you look at the performance year to date, Meta down 50%. PayPal down 59%, Netflix down 68%. There are reasons why that's happening, though, right? The bigger question investors need to ask themselves, as opposed to why are these value stocks, you know, why are these companies where they are today? And and I think you know these are all businesses. They're they're all market leaders in their own right, and 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 there is uncertainty abound in all three as well. So what is that uncertainty, and what are the chances that they can turn this conversation around? And so you look at something like Metaverse. To me, Meta stands out as as the one with the most uncertainty because it seems like it's it's kind of placing all of its chips on this bet on the Metaverse, which right now is just a big fat question mark for a lot of us. Uh, we don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know how many people are going to choose to participate. Uh, we don't know how really that's going to monetize. We're at video streaming and digital and mobile payments. I think the uncertainty is very much uh, just less, right? I mean, there's just less uncertainty in regard to those long-term sort of tailwinds there. Uh, so it's going to be it's going to be interesting to watch how uh, these businesses recover from this sort of value territory. But it's also worth remembering that as businesses get bigger. Right, this just becomes more and more the part of the conversation. I mean, we we at a point uh, we're talking about Apple in, in this light, right? As it became a dividend-paying stock. Well, Chris, that worked out pretty well for investors. So I would encourage you to kind of see the glass half full in this case. From value stocks to bellwethers, shares of FedEx up nearly 10% on Friday. Fourth quarter results were mixed, but FedEx gave strong guidance for the new fiscal year. I'm not a shareholder, Matt, but this is one of those companies that I root for because of its role in the broader economy. I'm not a shareholder either, Chris, but uh, after these results, I'm I'm thinking about it because, <laughs> I mean, go back to our earlier discussion on the economy. If you want to feel pretty good about things, 
Uh, yeah, look at FedEx's earnings. So, when the quarter just ended in May, uh, revenue was up 8% year over year, yet adjusted operating profits up 13%, and pretty much better profit margins across the board. And this was a quarter, by the way, where we had significantly higher fuel prices. That's a huge uh, line item for, for FedEx, yet they managed through it pretty, pretty darn well. And yeah, the, the guidance was, was where the strength was really. I mean, you had forecast earnings per share growth of around 14% in the current fiscal year, which just started. Now, some of that growth is coming from buybacks. So FedEx, which really hasn't been a big repurchaser of its stock, uh, they bought back more than $2 billion worth of stock. Over the last fiscal year, so that's that's really helping the earnings per share. Um, they also recently raised their dividend by fifty three percent. So you know you step back and and you have this bellwether business. There's a, it's the stock is trading for roughly eleven twelve times forward earnings, and now the dividend is yielding two percent, and you've got double digit earnings growth potentially this year. So I like I said I don't own shares of FedEx, but I think if you're a shareholder today, you've got to feel pretty good about it, and it, it tells you a pretty good story about the economy. On Tuesday, DocuSign announced that CEO Dan Springer was leaving effective immediately. Board Chair Maggie Wilderotter takes over as interim CEO as DocuSign looks for a permanent replacement. Jason, we've talked before about how a rising stock price provides a halo effect for CEOs. We're in a bear market. Shares of DocuSign are down more than 50% year-to-date. They are not alone, as we have discussed before. I'm wondering if you expect to see more changes in more corner offices. I, I absolutely think it's a possibility. I mean, a business that stands out to me is... is uh being a part of this conversation is PayPal, right? It wouldn't shock me at all uh, to see to see CEO Dan Shulman at least feeling like the spotlight could be turning his way. Uh, you look at what's going on with DocuSign. I mean, these companies have found themselves in a tricky spot, right? I mean, this is a business that's fundamentally far better than it was even just a couple of years ago. I mean, if you look at first quarter of 2019 revenue for DocuSign, 214 million dollars. You fast forward today. First quarter of 2022, that was revenue of $588 million. I mean, it's it's still working its way towards profitability, but it is cash flow positive. I mean, this is a business that's fundamentally a better better shape, but there were some unforced errors along the way uh, that that were committed. I mean, in regard to forecasting, there's employee attrition. And, and, and Dan Springer, to be fair, took his lumps here recently talking about how they did such a great job of fulfilling demand during a tough time. That demand more or less just showed up on their doorstep, though. They didn't do as great a job. They kind of took their eyes off the ball in creating demand. And I think that could be where the concern for this business is today. Perhaps there's another shoe to drop. It's hard to say, but but I do know when you look at recent language in PayPal's call. I mean, there there was a tone of humility on the part of Dan Shulman and saying, "Listen, we need to rethink our philosophy and methodology around forecasting, and we need to get back to where we were before the pandemic and making sure we we give the ball to our teammates and let them develop and run and grow this business as well." I said it before. It felt like maybe PayPal became a little bit of a Dan Shulman centric story. It felt like maybe DocuSign became a little bit of a Dan Springer-centric story. And, and that, that, that's a sword that can cut both ways. And unfortunately, in this case, it resulted in uh, Mr. Springer having to step down. And I don't mean to indicate that the sole report card for any CEO should be the stock price. It just seems, though, that because of the environment we're, we're in, it, you, know, you use the word rethinking, it, I, I can see 
more boards of directors, um, and in some cases, maybe CEOs themselves sort of evaluating where they are, where their business is, and say, you know what, it might be time for a change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's it's just no two ways about it. I mean, I mean, leadership uh, can make or break a a a business in certain cases, and uh, it's something you can never take these types of situations for granted. A good business is a good business, but you'd still have to have someone leading the way. Up next, we've got the latest in housing, restaurants, and more. So stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Matt Argusinger and Jason Moser. Shares of Darden Restaurants up nearly 5% this week. The parent company of Olive Garden raised their dividend 10% and posted higher than expected profits and revenue for the fourth quarter. Jason, we talked about this earlier in the week. Olive Garden drives the bus for Darden, but they've got a fine dining segment that's doing much better, although management is being cautious with their guidance. They are. I mean, Darden has always been very good about using its size to its advantage and keeping prices low, maximizing efficiencies, and reaching every level of consumer from the lower end to the higher. And it certainly feels like they've been able to keep that ball rolling here over the last couple of years, which have been a tough time for really all restaurant restaurant business. But to your point there on the numbers, uh, total sales up 14.2%. That was driven by by same-store restaurant sales of 11.7%. Now, like you said, Olive Garden drives the bus. That's the biggest contributor to the business, and those comps were up 6.5%. But the fine dining, to your point, 34.5%, Chris. I mean, people wanted to treat themselves this quarter, it sounds like. And that's all very encouraging. I think uh, the 10% boost to the dividend from a quarter ago is a sign of strength as well. Uh, in what they, interestingly, what what Darden does, right? They, and you heard this on the call a lot. They continue to underprice inflation and their competition. I mean, inflation has really been a key theme for a lot of these calls, and they continue to focus on underpricing inflation and their competition to present a value proposition and bring people in. It certainly worked out very well for them on Mother's Day. It was the highest sales day ever for Olive Garden, the highest guest, the second highest guest count day in their history. Um, and interestingly, also on staffing, right now they have more managers per restaurant than pre-COVID times. And so, at the manager level, they're doing great. They're back to basically pre-COVID levels on the team member side as well. Though they did note there's some pockets of restaurants where there's some staffing issues. But generally speaking, in a world where staffing in the service industry has been very difficult, it feels like Darden has managed their way pretty well, and that is playing out on the business. Am I the only one who thinks that when earnings season heats up in July and August, we're going to hear the phrase staffing issues from more than a couple of uh, retailers and restaurants out there? I feel like we will. I feel like we will. And it feels like Darden has put themselves uh, in a pretty good spot where this is concerned. KB Homes' second quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected and shares up nearly 15% this week. Maddie, you watch real estate and housing more than anyone I know. What, if anything, does a home builder like KB Home Tell us about the housing market. Well, it tells us tells us a, a pretty good story. I think I, you know I, I was looking at KB Homes results, and to me, they they kind of told us exactly what I think most of us think is going on with the housing market, which is housing market's not crashing. I mean, it's not you know falling off a cliff uh, by any stretch. Uh, people are still buying homes, uh, especially in straw markets like the Southeast, Southwest. Um, and even California, where KB Home does a lot of its building, 
There has been some moderation, though, as you know, we've seen interest rates, mortgage rates surge higher, uh, really historically over the past few months. Um, so, if you look at KB's result, results, even though revenue and margins were higher, um, that's really mostly reflective of higher home prices. Deliveries, on the other hand, were flat. Uh, orders have actually come down, and cancellations have picked up a little bit. So, to me, KB Home going up as much as it did recently is really just kind of a relief rally because home builders have just been hit really hard. Um, so, you've got the higher revenue, higher margins, but lower growth. I think that's kind of the same story a lot of the home builders are telling right now. My one disagreement that I have with KB is their guidance. It has me a little worried. So, they're guiding for uh, that the average selling price is going to keep moving higher to about $500,000. Uh, right now, it's around $490,000. Uh, that strikes me as, as pretty optimistic. Uh, I expect we're going to see a moderation in prices. We're going to see those orders probably continue to come down. So, and I feel like home builders are probably going to protect margin more than anything else. And they're already facing a lot of pressures on the on the supply side and the cost side. So, it's it's I'm a little concerned, but I I do think that home builders have just been beaten down so hard, including KB Home, that. Any kind of decent good news, you know. In other words, housing market's not crashing. Good news is going to send their stocks probably higher. Should we be looking for uh, sort of similar guidance uh, from other home builders as well, and essentially compare what they think is going to happen to home prices going forward to what KB Home is saying? I think that's. I think that'd be smart to do. I haven't. You know, we're going to see this coming quarter when they when the home builders report what they say about their average selling prices. I expect. A lot of the other home builders, like NVR, uh, DH Horton, are going to come out and say, "No, we actually think prices are going to stay roughly flat, maybe even slightly lower uh, over the next fiscal year." So we'll have to see. This week, Kellogg announced plans to split into three separate public companies: one for breakfast cereal, one for snacks, one for plant-based foods. CEO Steve Callahan is planning to run the snack business, and Jason. I'm already a consumer of both <laughs> Cheez-Its and Pringles, so I might have to invest my money where my mouth is. Well, I feel like you're probably right there. The snacks company, to my mind, seems like the more attractive of the three opportunities. I mean, when you look at the overall business, I mean, Kellogg has been relatively stagnant here over the last five years. I mean, compound annual growth rate on the revenue side of 2.1%, which is just nothing really to write home about. Although I will say it's had a very good year to date. The stock is actually up and outperforming the market handily. So that's nice. Um, Chris, I just have very strong feelings on the tickers here, okay? In two ways. The cereal company's ticker better be POPS, P O P S, <laughs> if not missed opportunity. And for the love of God, I'm with you on Cheez Its. I'm Going extra toasty, and it feels like it's a perfect opportunity for that snacks division uh, ticker to be C H Z T. If it's not cheese, it color me disappointed. Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, guys, we'll see you later in the show. Up next, we will get the latest on the metaverse and the entertainment industry with senior analyst Jim Mueller. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to the jungle. We've got fun and games. We got everything you want, honey. We know the names. We are the people that can find whatever you may need. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Earlier this week, the Wall Street Journal reported that Comcast and Alphabet have emerged as the top contenders to work with Netflix on the ad-supported tier of their service. 
Joining me to discuss that and other parts of the entertainment media landscape is Motley Fool senior analyst Jim Mueller. Jim, thanks for being here. My pleasure, Chris. How are you doing? Doing well. I want to get your thoughts on Netflix apart from this, but uh, let's start with this story. Is this a lucrative opportunity for whoever wins the right to work with Netflix on advertising? Not right off. Certainly not this year. Probably not next year. It's going to take a little bit uh, because Netflix and and whoever wins, Google, Comcast, whoever, uh, need to figure out how to how to serve the ads, who gets to see the ads, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it could be, it could be. But if, if uh, Netflix shareholders are thinking this is going to be the savior of the company, it's going to take a few years uh, for this to really get going. What do you think is a reasonable uh, success metric? What should people be looking for? Because it, it seems as though Netflix is very focused on launching this in this calendar year. Look for revenue growth, as as uh, management said at the end of the end of the call uh, last quarter, at the end of the first quarter call. But for quite a while, Netflix's uh, growth revenue growth is going to be still subscriber counts, how many subscribers you have. Because remember, any anyone who goes to ad based here and, and is willing to be served those ads, Netflix is losing money on because they have to lower they're going to lower the price. And so they have to make that up plus whatever extra they can get per person for that. And so if you're thinking of billions and billions of dollars of revenue from advertising, they're going to have to come up, overcome even more billions of lost revenue because of the of the drop in the in the pricing tier. Why do you think Netflix is going the route of partnering with someone? Certainly. Um, you know, Google is as experienced at advertising digitally as any business out there. Is it just so that they can launch this sooner? Um, because I'm sure there are people within Netflix who are making the argument saying, no, we should build this thing ourselves. You answered your own question. Yes, this is to get it out there quicker. Get someone who knows the advertising business, because Hastings and Sarandos and those guys, they do not know advertising at all. They know content, they know subscription, they Diddly on advertising. So get somebody who is experienced on that, learn from them. And in comments made today uh, in another Wall Street Journal article, co CEO Ted Sarandos is quoted as saying that they're basically they want to end up building their own and iterating and making it uh, their own thing, uh, which means that this uh, partnership is going to be a few years, maybe a decade at most. I think uh, just just from what what they were saying, they definitely want to do it themselves. Uh, but they, I think, they recognize that that in order to start generating more revenue, they need to get in this faster than the two-year timeline they mentioned at the end of the first quarter. What do you think the current state of Netflix is? Um, uh, is this a stock? That looks uh, certainly it's a lower price than it was, <laughs> say a year or so ago. And you know, it it's always fascinating to me when there's a business that is the clear leader. Uh, let's be clear about this: all other subscribing services would love to have the number of subscribers that Netflix has. Yep. They're the clear leader in that category, um, but the stock is really beaten down right now. So you're asking, is it a value play? No, I think it's a value trap at the moment. They're in trouble. They lost two million subscribers this last quarter. 
Okay, they came in two million subscribers light against their against uh, what they had guided to Wall Street, and when they issued that guidance in January, it was half of what Wall Street was expecting. So they got they got pounded about that, and they and they couldn't even make it because of a near one percent churn. And for the current quarter Q two, which the report in uh, in in July, middle of July, they uh, they guided to they're guiding to a two million subscriber drop. That's the first time they've ever guided in like 16 years. I've been tracking this for 16 years. That's the first time they've ever guided to a subscriber drop. And if they miss on that and the drop is like three or four million, yeah, you don't want to be buying shares at, at today's price. That means the virtuous cycle of more subscribers means more revenue, means more spending on great content, which brings in more subscribers. That is the, that's been the driver for the company so far. But now, if their subscriber count is actually beginning to go down, you're going to start running that backwards, and that is death to the company. They need to get revenue. That's why they've uh, finally caved on the advertising thing. That's why they're starting to focus on very carefully so they don't, they don't push people away on the sharing issue of passwords and so on. So, uh, yeah, I think they're, they're reacting to things and in trouble. And I'd like, before investing in it again, I would like to see uh, them start to solve these problems. And full disclosure, I do, no, do not longer own any shares of the company. Earlier this month, uh, there were reports that Netflix might be buying Roku. Uh, certainly, the, the more recent reports about uh, Comcast and Alphabet probably put all of that to rest. If you're a Roku shareholder, are you disappointed or are you relieved? Yes, Sarandos confirmed that in the same article. We don't need it. That's a quote. Uh, declining to comment on reports that Netflix could be interested in buying the streaming hub Roku. So, that was quoting from the Wall Street uh, Journal article. We don't need it. And frankly, anyone who actually kind of thought about it said, okay, they've got $6 billion of cash on the books. How much are they going to spend to buy Roku? And what's it going to give them? And how else might they use that money? And remember, they're spending a lot of money on that content. So I don't think the Roku thing was anything more than a rumor and not even much of one. As a shareholder, Roku, probably kind of relieved. Roku has has a pretty solid business by itself. Uh, they've just hit a little bit of a rough patch, and I think uh, shareholders give them give that management team time to get through it. They should be all right. All right, let's move away from streaming video and into the metaverse. Meta Platform CEO Mark Zuckerberg said this week his goal is to have one billion people in the metaverse, each spending hundreds of dollars a year. Uh, let's put aside whether or not you or I think. It's going to get to a billion people, and how long that will take. I am curious, though, about sort of the commerce part in all of this. Um, when you think about the metaverse, do you think there are public companies that are among the likely candidates to either enable e-commerce in the metaverse or provide the entertainment or services or you know whatever that people are going to actually spend money on? Oh, sure, advertising, obviously, and that—that's what. Facebook, I'm sorry, I can't say meta platforms without cracking up. That's obviously what does where the uh, Zuckerberg is going with that. And, but there's so many ways to play play the metaverse. Uh, so you've got advertising, you've got uh, companies like the Trade Desk that do a good job of placing ads where they do the most good. And they'll learn from the patterns of what people do inside whatever platform they're on about which ads would serve those people well. And you've got 
Google, Alphabet, of course, uh, and their expertise of advertising. Then you've got the the platforms. I mean, the way the way a lot of people are talking about it is, it's as if the metaverse is a single thing. It's not. It's scattered all over the place. You've got Facebook's version, you've got Roblox's version, and within that, you've got a whole hundreds, if not thousands, of different uh, little worlds to go explore. You've got live baseball. You've got that that has metaverse. I mean, you, you see the the what what they call Statcast, uh, the arc of the ball, the speed of the pitch, the placement. All that is using data from the real world and adding a layer of computer-generated imagery and information on top, which is what's called augmented reality, if I've got my terminology right. So you could uh, uh, play into, well, Major League Baseball is not public, but uh, there are are companies that collect that data and provide it. Uh, Sport Radar is probably the biggest player there. So... Lots of different ways to play it. Uh, if I were going to be investing in this long-term trend, I'd want to be willing to sit for at least a decade uh, as, it, as it slowly builds out. I mean, the internet, it took a long time for the internet to really get going. And this, I think, is bigger and requires more of a commitment by people to have some sort of hardware permanently on if they're going to be in it all in, in it all the time that it's going to take longer for this to come into uh, a reality for for most people. Uh, you mentioned live baseball, and that's actually where I want to wrap up, because I know you're a big baseball fan. Um, Apple and Peacock are each paying Major League Baseball $100 million for the rights to stream games. Amazon Prime is uh, doing New York Yankee games on Friday nights. Um, as someone who is a subscriber of Apple Plus, I, they are pushing the baseball on a regular <laughs> basis. Um, I'm, I'm curious uh, if... Uh, these are services that you think are going to lure people in because the the larger trend obviously is something that I think we we all talked about for a while and it took a while to get going but it was this idea that big tech companies like Apple and Amazon would actually start bidding on live sports um, you know there were people back in 2008, 9, and 2010 saying, oh, this is coming. It actually took a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. Um, But do you think Apple and Peacock sort of dipping their toe into Major League Baseball's waters, do you think this is a prelude to larger things? Oh, definitely, definitely. Apple, uh, in in addition to that baseball stuff, they're the likely winner of the NFL Sunday ticket. Uh, it just hasn't been announced yet, uh, but that's that's the speculation, which means they'll have a bunch of uh, American football games on every every weekend, uh, starting probably next year. Yeah, I, I think uh, Directv Directv has has the contract through the end of this year. So not not only baseball, but sports in general. I mean, I, I ran across a story while while thinking about this. Uh, Sinclair, the the television network company. Uh, they're, they just launched. In fact, it go, went live this past week. Uh, re, their regional sports uh, network, Bally Sports, uh, as a independent streaming uh, service to play baseball games for the five uh, the five baseball teams in that in that regional sports network. And regional sports networks, like yes, Yankee, Yankee. I don't know what the ES stands for, but it's the it's the. Uh, 
Yankee One, NESN covers the, uh, the, the Boston Red Sox. All these regional sports networks, they're starting to launch their own little subscription services uh, to this. Major League Baseball, of course, has the whole thing, except for your regional teams for 150 a year. I finally ponied up. <laughs> and just to watch some of my Mariner games. So yeah, this this is definitely happening. This is definitely a thing, and you can expect more of it, more and more of it to come going forward. Jim Mueller, good luck to your Mariners. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Thanks. Up next, Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger return. They got a couple of stocks on their radar, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger. Our email address is podcasts at fool.com. Got a question from Levi in South Dakota who writes, any updates on the Activision Blizzard buyout? We're saving to build a house, and I'm wondering if this is too risky to put some of our house savings into for an arbitrage play. Warren Buffett likes it, so does that indicate safety? Let me just thank you for the question, Levi. Let me just review for uh, folks who haven't been following it as closely as we have. Back in January, Microsoft announced it would buy Activision Blizzard for $95 a share. The deal is expected to close next year. At the moment, Activision shares are around $77. At the end of April, uh, Warren Buffett said at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting that Berkshire owns Nine and a half percent of Activision Blizzard, and it's because he he said, you know, sometimes I'll see an arbitrage deal and I'll do it. Uh, and I'm quoting here: It looks like the odds are in our favor, but absolutely we can lose money on this company, fairly large sums of money, depending on what happened if the deal blows up. Uh, so, Matt, we can't give specific, personalized guidance for Levi, but. Um, I, I don't know. I think the fact that Buffett himself is signaling, like, yeah, we like our odds, but there's no guarantee. I feel like that, that in and of itself, provides even more guidance. Right. That that is that's the guidance. I these are these are these can be dangerous. Uh, I forget who said it first, but it's the metaphor of you're picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. In this case, it's a little different though. The spread is so wide, and you got Buffett behind it. I, I have to say, this is one of those arbitrage plays. Just speaking from my own. Personal perspective: I own shares of Activision Blizzard, not because of the arbitrage play. I've owned it. I've owned the shares for years. But it's one of those situations where I do think there's probably not as much downside because of the, you said the stock's at 77. Well, that is just slightly above where Activision's been trading the last five years. So I feel like even if the deal falls through, regulatory concerns or what have you, I don't feel like it's a situation where the stock is actually going to plummet. Uh, it'll fall, but maybe the downside isn't as sharp as it might be, say, for another arbitrage play. So it's you know, not maybe maybe worth a small bet for the average investor. I don't know. 
Yeah, Jason, I feel like uh, this is one of those situations, if you're interested, uh, maybe make it a, a, a small percentage of your investing dollars. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, the old the old saw goes, if something looks or seems too good to be true, it usually is. It, it feels like, in this case, I'm with Matty, it does feel like this deal likely happens, and even if it doesn't, I mean, Activision Blizzard on its own is still a good business. So the downside is relatively limited. But you know, you go back to the funds, right? I mean, these funds are for building a house, so this is a big deal. You really, you, you don't, you don't want to put that stuff at risk. So I think it all goes back to just these are the types of situations. Maybe you have a small portion of your portfolio that's dedicated to special situations investing, which is what this would qualify as. Um, and also remember, there are going to be short-term capital gain taxes here at play, uh, depending on the type of account that you use. But um, yeah, I, I tend to agree with Matt. It feels like the downside in this case is probably somewhat limited. All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Matt, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Uh, Chris, I'm looking at eBay, and the ticker's E-B-A-Y, simple as it comes. Uh, this, everyone knows eBay, and it's still an e-commerce powerhouse. I mean, they did $10 billion in annual revenue last year. Still have 147 million active buyers, 17 million active sellers. So, it's a huge platform, huge marketplace. And it's just a huge, big-time cash generator. Uh, nearly $1.8 billion in free cash flow over the last 12 months. They've used a lot of that cash flow to reduce share count by buybacks. They bought back over 50% of the stock over the last nine years. Trades at a 4P multiple 11. They started paying a dividend in 2019. They've raised that a few times already. I just, you know, I, I hate disagreeing with the market, but I think eBay is way too cheap right now. Dan, question about eBay? You know, it's not too cheap, Chris. <laughs> All the stuff that I want to buy on eBay. <laughs> I got to tell you, boys, I do like eBay as a service. It is a wonderful way to get uh, things that are out of print or uh, special or signed or, you know, anything that commemorative or memorabilia or whatever. I love the service. Uh, I, th I think that as a stock, if it's super cheap right now, it might be a good opportunity because I don't think eBay is going anywhere. There you go, Dan. Jason Moser, what's on your radar? Yeah, keeping an eye on Qualcomm, ticker QCOM. I'm going to have the good fortune next week to interview CFO Akash Palkiwala. And we'll be talking, hopefully, about a wide range of topics, things like how they're handling the ongoing supply chain issues, Apple's moves to becoming more vertical. They have an ongoing partnership with Microsoft. And, of course, their ongoing efforts in building out 5G. But, hey, it's also worth noting they are a founding affiliate of 6G at UT, a program at the University of Texas that is working on the inevitable rollout of 6G and all of its applications. So, it should be a very fun and educational interview. And folks probably know I've recommended Qualcomm in both of my services here at The Fool, so I'm especially excited. Dan, question about Qualcomm? Now, Qualcomm seems like one of those stocks from the 90s that has just stuck <laughs> around for whatever reason. I'm sure that they've been very important in developing technology and stuff in the past. But all I can think of when I think of Qualcomm is like landlines. Well, Dan, that's not really a question, but I'm going to put it into question form and add it to the interview next week. So, thanks for the help. <laughs> I love the reference to landlines. Dan, of those two, do you have one you want to add to your watch list? You know what, Chris? As much as I like the old rotary phone, I think I'm going to have to go with eBay on this one. Again, it's a service that I love. I think it's a great site. Matt Argusinger, Jason Moser. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money radio show. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hell. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.